So I am excited today to speak with Dr. Lucy Sorensen. Dr. Sorensen is an assistant professor of public administration and public pol and policy at the Rockefeller College of Public Affairs and Policy at the University of Albany. Dr. Sorensen specializes in education and social policy. Her research is focused on how policy interventions can reduce educational and economic inequality. She has published numerous papers in peer-reviewed education and economic journals. Dr. Sorensen is the lead author of a 2020 paper published with Helen Ladd of Duke University. The title of that paper is The Hidden Costs of Teacher Turnover. That is the topic of today's conversation and is part of our series on the current state of the teaching profession. Dr. Sorensen, welcome to Fishing for Problems. Thank you so much for, for having me. Can you first speak a little bit to your background and how you came to write about um, the costs of teacher turnover? Yeah, so my background is um, that I went to graduate school at Duke University. At that time there, I started really digging into education policy research. I worked with a center there called the North Carolina Education Research Data Center. Um, and I began working with Professor Helen Ladd on issues having to do with teacher policies and the teacher workforce focusing on North Carolina, but trying to speak to national policy debates that were happening. And so we'd already done a couple of studies, one looking at, at teacher returns to teacher experience and returns to teacher master's degrees. And so this was an effort to really begin thinking about teacher turnover. And we were having conversations with Elisa Chapman, who um, was in the administration at UNC, and she was seeing on the other end of things how the teacher preparation program enrollments had been declining around the same time that North Carolina was facing turnover issues. And so we got together and started talking about this and, and that's how we started studying this issue. Great, thank you. And so to provide a framework for today's conversation on the topic of teacher turnover, I think we can structure it in four parts. The first part is setting the historical context. I wanna be intentional about this. The reason why I'm interested in this topic right now is not because it's a new problem in the K-12 space. On the contrary, we're going to speak to what you call the hidden costs of teacher turnover. Um, that paper, as I've said, you published in 2020 with data obviously collected prior to publication. So this is all pre-COVID. Rates and causes of teacher attrition is a well-researched topic. A 2007 study by Barnes that you referenced in your 2020 paper has been cited over 850 times, according to Google Scholar, a seminal paper in this space by Richard Ingersoll from 2001 titled Teacher Turnover and Teacher Shortages and Organizational Analysis has been cited over 5,000 times since its publication, according to Google Scholar. So this problem predates COVID and that context is critical to understanding the current state of public education. So that's the first part. Part two, why is this a problem? You write that teacher turnover leads to quote, market and lasting negative consequences for the quality of the instructional staff and student achievement, end quote. That doesn't sound particularly good. At this point in the conversation, we can speak more in generalities and then we'll get into part three. What are the hidden costs of teacher attrition? Here we can expand on part two, get more specific. So parts two and three are likely gonna blend into one another. Uh, and then part four, what's going on right now? What's different about the current situation if you think anything is different? Uh, if time, we can discuss possible policy changes to address the status quo. 
Um, we are not going to be exploring in too much detail, if any at all, the root causes of turnover. That's going to be for another pod. Um, so let's jump in and set the stage. Can you set the context for your 2020 paper? I think of March 2020 as the demarcation line. So pre-March 2020, pre-COVID, what was the state of teacher turnover? And I want to, at this point, as much as possible, refrain from diagnosing attrition at this point as a positive or negative phenomenon, but rather speak to the data. What, what were we seeing? Of course. So prior to the pandemic, um, I have a statistic that around 16% of teachers leave their schools in a, given, in a given school year, and around half of these teachers are leaving to go teach at a different school, and the other half are leaving the profession altogether. So um, again, there's nothing inherently wrong with turnover. Every, every profession has turnover, and so uh, the question is, how high is too high and, and what are kind of the effects of this turnover if it's lasting or if it's systematic in some way? And can you speak to the half that are leaving the profession? Are they retiring or are they leaving the profession to do something else? All of the above. So a lot of these are retirements. I think that's, I think that was the number one reason for people to leave the profession was retirement. Some are leaving the profession for a different a job, a different type of career. Others are having children and maybe dropping out of the labor market altogether. So there are a lot of different reasons and not all of them. Some of them might be associated with dissatisfaction with the job, but not all of them. And I don't think the, the majority of them are that. And so we have about 16% of teachers leaving schools. How are those jobs typically filled? Um, so that creates a demand for new teachers. Uh, how, is that, how is that demand satisfied? Yeah, so this goes a little bit into the study and what we we're curious about, which is what happens when a school loses a teacher? How do they respond? What do they do? Um, and obviously, in an ideal scenario, they hire a replacement, and that replacement teacher would ideally be as qualified as the person who left. Um, in some cases, there might be there are certain subject areas, for instance, where vacancies are, are harder to fill, notably special education. It can be quite hard to fill vacancies, and um, there are a lot of at least anecdotes of um, these special education teacher vacancies lasting for a very long time and having trouble filling them, sometime with STEM subjects as well. But generally, the most common response to losing a teacher is to hire a new one. And so we've got the steady stream of about 16% of teachers leaving schools each year. You said about half of them leave for another school, half of them leave the profession entirely. You write in that 2020 paper that, quote, your study is grounded in the ongoing debate among researchers about the extent to which teacher turnover is likely to strengthen or weaken the mix of teachers in individual schools, end quote. This podcast is called Fishing for Problems. The title was inspired by Gerd Bista, a German academic who believes that we should be looking for problems in the K-12 space. And the data is clear. There's a not insignificant amount of turnover. So why is this a problem? And I want to lean into this question because one can imagine a situation where the, quote, bad teachers are leaving and they're being replaced by, quote, good teachers. As you mentioned, other professions deal with turnover. It's not always a bad thing. 
Um, can you speak to why this is a problem? But even before doing that to our listeners, a thought experiment, close your eyes, unless you're driving, walking, doing the dishes. Think about what happens when one of your colleague leaves. Think about if the person leaving is a good colleague that contributes positively to the culture and performance of your work. Think about if the person is toxic to both the culture and performance. Feel free to pause the podcast and envision what happens next in those situations. I may ask you to do this again when we explore the current situation and provide you with some different parameters for that thought experiment. So pause now if you want to, but to you, Lucy, why is turnover a problem? Why isn't fresh blood, fresh perspectives, new and eager teachers? Why doesn't this lead to better quality of school? That's a great point and question. And as I've said before, there's no reason to think that turnover itself is inherently a bad thing, especially if it is less effective teachers who are leaving and they're being replaced by better, um, more effective teachers. What I think, when I think it starts becoming a problem, or at least when I think people start having concerns, particularly in the K-12 setting, is when there are high levels of turnover and those high levels of turnover are sustained over time. And so I think that high sustained turnover can cause problems for a few reasons. First, it's problematic if it contributes to teacher shortages. And again, um, there's kind of mixed evidence on how much there was or wasn't a general teaching shortage before the pandemic. But second, there are direct costs, direct fiscal costs to schools and districts when teachers leave. So in an urban district, just the administrative costs of recruiting, hiring, training, or replacement teacher alone can cost around $20,000. And so those are kind of the direct costs that we talk a little bit about in our study. And then third, it's a problem if it harms student learning. And there are now a few different studies that show that turnover within schools does have a negative impact on student test scores, one by uh, Matthew Ronfelt et al., looking at New York City schools. And these costs to student learning can either come about just because there's some immediate disruption, right? The disruption of one teacher leaving and a new teacher coming in for students. But also it could be problematic for student learning if it has these longer term changes to the organization of the school, to the composition of the school, to the human resources within the school, which is what we're really trying to, which is what we really tried to get at in our study. Yeah. And so it sounds like it matters, obviously, who is leaving those positions. Can you speak a little bit to the kinds of teachers that uh, that end up um, leaving in, in higher rates? Yes. Yeah, so teachers that leave in, in higher rates, um, first of all, less experienced teachers, teachers in the first five years of their teaching are much more likely to leave than teachers who have been in their job longer, right? So there's a lot of turnover early on in a teacher's career or, or possible turnover. In terms of whether we're losing good teachers or bad teachers, um, there's been some research on that. So one study by Lee Fung and Tim Sass using looking at Florida, they found that it's both the top of the distribution, right? The really good teachers who are more likely to leave and the bottom of the distribution, the worst, some of the worst teachers who are more likely to leave. Um, another study in DC, which I think you mentioned earlier, they found that under this 
this performance evaluation system where low performing teachers were actually actively being pushed out. Um, turnover actually improved the quality of teachers in that particular case. So I think it can matter a lot on, in, on context, but it also matters on who the replacement teachers are. So we try and get at what's that net effect when you're looking both at the teacher who leaves and at the teacher who joins the school. Yeah, and can you speak to this concept of a replacement teacher? And when I saw that, what I was wondering was, when does that cycle actually begin? So when is a teacher a replacement teacher? And how how likely are those replacement teachers? Uh, how likely are they to stay? Because it seems like there's a fairly clear link toward uh, replacement teachers replacing replacement teachers. And so you have this positive feedback loop um, where um, where you have teachers just constantly filling in for uh, new teachers who end up leaving. Those teachers had previously filled jobs of other teachers who had left. Yes, there is this kind of problematic cycle that that I think begins to happen in schools where they have a lot of turnover because then they're forced, as we show in our study, they're forced to hire teachers who are less experienced, um, often novice teachers. They're, they're sometimes forced to hire teachers who don't have certification, so things like lateral entry teachers. Um, and these teachers then have higher average turnover rates as well. And so with schools, they can end up in this cycle of just having a lot of constant churning and, and having to constantly manage that, which I think can be really difficult. Yeah, thanks. And, and you also mentioned the uh, Project Impact. I'm not sure if it's called Project Impact or just Impact in uh, DC public schools. Uh, they uh, instituted a performance assessment and incentive system that, as you said, led to um, some changes uh, throughout the district as far as the way that they evaluated teachers and the consequences of those policy changes, which suggest that uh, policy matters in these uh, circumstances. So can you just speak a bit to uh, what DC Public Schools was trying to do and the outcome of that project? Sure, so I'm, I'm not an expert, but I'll, I'll speak to what I know about this, this reform, the impact reform in DC. And there's a great study by Allison Atterbury and, and colleagues where they look at the effects of turnover under the impact reform in DC and find that it improved student achievement outcomes for students. So that was, um, you know, a different finding that was unusual in this field. And, and under this evaluation system, it was, it's multifaceted. And so I don't understand all of the different aspects of the reform. But I know that under this performance evaluation, they both had kind of carrot and stick type policies. So they both gave bonuses and various benefits to teachers who are performing really well under the evaluation system. Um, and then they also had a series of sanctions um, and penalties for teachers who weren't performing well. And eventually that teacher could lose their job or they could kind of be encouraged to leave or something like that. And so again, this creates a very different type of turnover than we see in ordinary instances. Um, I also think DC's not perfectly generalizable for other reasons as well, and that they have this really robust 
teacher labor market, right? They have a lot of potential teachers in DC. They can also hire teachers from Virginia or Maryland. And so you have this system where maybe turnover isn't such a bad thing because you have a really strong teacher pool um, to pull from. So I'm not sure exactly whether that was the case, but I think it's hard to generalize from that one um, instance how turnover typically works. And I think that's a good segue just into the data generally. Are rates of turnover the same based on the type of school? So can you speak a little bit to rural versus suburban versus urban or low income versus high income and the various circumstances of turnover within each of those um, contexts? Absolutely. So I'll, I'll speak to North Carolina, but these patterns are the same no matter where you look, I believe. So in North Carolina, in our sample, we are looking at middle school math and English language arts teachers. And in our full sample, we saw that 20%, 26, excuse me, percent of teachers were leaving in a given year um, on average. However, there were significant differences across different types of schools. So turnover is much higher in urban districts than rural districts. And this is largely due to within district turnover. So if you think about teaching in a school in Los Angeles, if you want to leave your job, you have a lot of other options of different schools that you could move to versus if you're teaching in a remote rural region, you might not have that many outside options. So turnover tends to be much higher in urban districts. Um, it's also higher in schools serving more economically disadvantaged students. And so again, in North Carolina, even though our average turnover rate was 26%, in urban high poverty schools, it was 35% on average. So more than a third of teachers were leaving every single year. And, and so it's definitely something that's not, that's not evenly distributed across schools, and it's really harming particular types of schools. So I feel like we have a good idea of the context. You've spoken a little bit to some of the costs, but let's dig in more to that 2020 paper. Um, to repeat a quote from that article, based on models controlling for school context and trends, we find that turnover has marked and lasting negative consequences for the quality of the instructional staff and student achievement, end quote. So what are those hidden costs? Yeah, so the hidden costs in this case, again, this is different from the financial costs that it takes to hire a new teacher. But we were trying to think of what are the different responses that a school can have. Um, so when a teacher leaves, the school could hire a replacement. This replacement could be more qualified or less qualified. They may, might pull a teacher in from a different subject to cover those courses. So they might pull a teacher from a different subject into a math classroom, different type of certification. Um, if they're very desperate, they might not be able to replace the teacher, right? And so we also wanted to look and see if class size was going up or something like that in response to teachers leaving. We didn't find this last effect, right? We didn't find any effect on class sizes. We think most of the teachers were being replaced. Um, in part, that's because North Carolina has pretty firm regulations about class size, but we did find a lot of the other forms of, of kind of concerning effects that we were 
that we were looking at. Um, so we found that this, on average, when a school has a few years of high sustained turnover, the average experience level of the teacher workforce at the school goes down. Um, the the proportion of teachers that are certified goes down. The proportion of teachers with lateral entry or alternative licenses goes up. Um, uh, I believe, I'm trying to remember the advanced degrees, I don't think we found an effect there, but in general, we see a less qualified teacher workforce overall following these periods of turnover. Yeah, and there's a lot to unpack there that building off of that last comment, it does seem like there is this positive feedback loop, positive, not in the sense that it's a good phenomenon, but in the sense that uh, more more turnover can lead to more turnover. Um, can you speak a little bit to, to that piece? Yeah, so there's, there's studies showing both that novice teachers are much more likely to turn over to leave a school and um, lateral entry teachers, uncertified teachers are again, much more likely to leave. And so if you're worried about retention moving forward, then replacing teachers with kind of high risk teachers um, does create this, this problem that continues down the line. And, and that's something we weren't even really able to look at in our study because we were looking at some of the, the immediate impacts of high periods of turnover. But, um, you know, we have to hypothesize based on what we found that there is probably this type of, of feedback loop, loop that you've mentioned where teacher turnover is, is a cycle that continues until until it doesn't, I guess. Yeah, and you you also mentioned that you're pulling in a teacher from another subject. Uh, for folks who do not spend a lot of time in the K-12 space, this is incredibly common. Uh, I'm seeing it more this year. Can't tell you how many times I have had a conversation with a teacher who said, this year I'm teaching first grade, even though I've taught fifth grade for the last 10 years, or I'm teaching math, even though I typically teach you know, reading, whatever it might be. Why is this a problem? Um, teaching is teaching, no? Uh, <laughs> teaching is teaching. Um, I mean, there there's a little bit mixed evidence on how much certification in certain subjects actually helps you be a better teacher. But I do think that there are benefits to specialization, that if you're an English teacher and you're being asked to be pulled into a math classroom, that's not going to be as beneficial for students. Um, we haven't, I, I think it also, I, I spoke to some uh, special education teacher in Philadelphia once who was talking about how they often get pulled in as substitute teachers for lots of different subjects. And so it's the type of thing that happens when a school doesn't have enough slack, right? They don't have enough people to respond to um, losses of teachers. And I know we haven't begun talking about COVID, but I think we're seeing that more dramatically now than ever, that when you have a teacher who has to go home because of COVID exposure or they're sick or something like that, it can become harder and harder to replace them within the school. And to the extent that we think the expertise matters and specialization matters, um, this is going to be harmful to kids. It is no doubt in all hands on deck type of approach right now. And this was a problem pre-COVID. 
I experienced it as an instructional coach where I had wanted to do more of the coaching and ended up doing more subbing. There's a position for those not familiar with the K-12 space called the TOSA, the teacher on special assignment. Right now, I would hypothesize that most TOSAs are not TOSAing. They are uh, substitute teaching. Principals are substitute teaching. Assistant principals are teaching. It is, yeah, it's truly uh, just sort of trying to place a tourniquet on uh, a significant problem that's only, you know, gotten worse. I would say this last month, we're recording this towards the end of January, um, but uh, it has certainly been uh, a problem uh, pre-COVID, only augmented um, post-COVID. Can you speak a little bit more to the quality of instructional staff and student achievement? You've spoken a little bit to that, uh, but just want to dig in a little bit more there and hear uh, you know, more about what happens when teachers leave. You mentioned non-traditional training programs and the impact of that. Um, and if you've done any uh, work on sort of school culture and the impact as well on this uh, constant churn and how that, that impacts a school's culture. Absolutely. So again, before we worked on this study, we worked on a project looking at teacher experience. And so we're very closely familiar with the fact that teacher experience really matters in the classroom. Um, and it takes, it takes a few years for teachers to really be able, be able to um, kind of manage classrooms and to master their art. And so to the extent that we have a lot of churning, a lot of teachers leaving before they have gained these, these, these benefits from experience and before students have gained those benefits from experience, that's going to be very harmful. We do find um, in our study a significant impact of turnover, not only on the qualifications of teachers, but also a negative impact on student test scores. And um, even beyond the fact that more experienced teachers and teachers with who have more qualifications seem to yield more student learning, there's also these potential unmeasurable benefits from experience. The fact that you can have master teachers who are then mentoring the younger teachers, you can have some form of stability in the school. And so I think there are these, um, in addition to the benefits that we can quantify, I think there are these other unquantifiable things that come with having um, a stable and experienced teacher workforce in your school. And so I think that's kind of one of the worrying findings coming out of our study. Yeah, absolutely. And I think about my last teaching position was at a school that had incredibly high rates of teacher turnover, not due to the quality of the school, but the, the nature of the, the job itself. Uh, just incredibly long weeks, um, high pressure environment. And I thought about the students and as a fifth grade student uh, graduating a couple years later in eighth grade and seeing maybe two of the 16 teachers that you had who are still there, what kind of an impact? Maybe none, but uh, you know, the school that I, I went to, there are still teachers teaching there, um, you know, 20 years later. And, and so uh, it, 
you know, it, I feel like it makes the school feel at times less like a home, no matter, you know, how hard the teachers are trying to create a safe space for their students. Yeah, and I think that's a model you see. Uh, I don't, I'm, I'm not trying to say something critical about charter schools, but I think it's a model you see pretty commonly in charter schools where um, they, they often rely on, on younger teachers working really long hours and um, tend to have higher turnover rates and tend to kind of have that model of teaching that's a little bit different. Yep. Yeah. I think we lost you at the beginning, but we got, got the tail end of it, but I think we, we heard the majority of the the point and um, we are welcome to be critical of charter schools if we want. Um, but we could save that for, for another conversation. I'm, I'm curious as I was, um, as I was looking through the, the paper on impact in DC, I was wondering if in the data that you looked at, if there was any, um, any evaluation data that uh, contributed to what you were seeing? If teacher eval, um, you know, had something to do with the the outcomes, and there's a reason why I asked that question, but I just wanted to, yeah, first um, ask it and see see sort of what you saw in the data. Yeah, so we did. Truthfully, we didn't look at that specifically in terms of the timing of our study. Um, our year coverage was 1995 to 2016. Okay. In North Carolina, um, I think the first active performance evaluation systems were introduced during Race to the Top, um, but they were a little bit inconsistent. So there wasn't one that was consistently used across the state. Um, in more recent years, they've implemented a bonus program for the highest performing teachers, but I don't think that was a, a significant, I don't think a significant number of teachers in our sample were, were being, were in an active evaluation system other than the fact that it was under no child left behind. And so their schools were being held accountable for student test scores. Okay, thank you. The reason why I asked that question was because one can imagine a situation where a school principal feels compelled to rate a performance a replacement teacher higher than the teacher who left uh, for a variety of reasons. One, if they're being evaluated by how effective they are at hiring and retaining teachers. Uh, uh, one wants to retain as many teachers as possible. You spoke to the costs, you know, close to $20,000 in some situation for hiring a new teacher. Uh, that's $20,000 saved if you don't need to uh, replace one of those replacement teachers. So I wanted to get your, your thoughts on that. I haven't seen any uh, data around this, any studies, they might be out there. But, you know, you speak to the hidden costs. One can certainly imagine a situation where teachers, replacement teachers are being rated higher than maybe their actual ability level just because uh, there aren't a whole lot of other teachers to potentially replace those replacement teachers. That's a good point. And, and part of the reason we didn't even look at, for instance, teacher value added, we could have said how does teacher value added change after turnover is because for replacement teachers, first of all, they often just don't have value added scores because they don't have enough 
years of data connected to them, or it's very noisy if they do have it where they might have one year of value added scores. And so it becomes really hard to measure effectiveness in terms of test score growth for new teachers and the way that you can measure it for teachers who've been there for a while, which is part of why we already knew a lot about what teachers who were leaving looked like, but we didn't know much about what the new replacement teachers were looking like. And it's why we focused on, on observable qualifications. Um, but that's an interesting point about that maybe it might incentivize gaming and having more positive evaluations for, for the teachers that come in. And that's certainly possible, but not something we were able to look at. Can you, I don't want to get too into the weeds, but can you just briefly speak to value-added measures and why they are being used in some studies to measure teacher attrition and the costs of losing teachers? Yes. So value-added measures, the basic idea is if a teacher has a group of, we'll say, 20 students, you can measure their test scores in the year before and then measure their test scores at the end of the year after they've had those teachers, teacher, sorry, after they've had that teacher, and you can estimate what's called a value-added score, which is basically, on average, how much did this teacher contribute to test score growth in their students? There are fancier ways of doing that where you can control for more things, but that's the basic idea. Um, it's a little bit, there are a few points of controversy about these measures. One is that just the argument that teachers shouldn't be evaluated based on test scores alone, um, that there are other qualities of teaching that are important. Um, another, and so for instance, in DC, they include both test score growth and classroom observations as like two different types of evaluations. But then, you know, a secondary problem is just the measurement problem, which is that these things can be, they can fluctuate a lot. Um, it can, how much students grow in a given year can be a function of a lot of different things other than just the teacher. It can be a function of what types of students they're teaching, the class size, their peers in that classroom. And so it's really hard to isolate the teacher component of that. But it's, you know, for most education research, it's often the best or the only tool that we have available to say, this is a really good teacher. This is a really bad teacher. So even though we know it's imperfect, people use it a lot as a proxy for good, more effective or less effective teachers. Yeah. And critical that we focus on growth there and not just proficiency, because if we focus on proficiency um, for teachers who work uh, in um, communities that are typically underserved that have lower test scores, they could see a lot of growth, but they're still going to be, uh, you know, below some of those uh, proficiency scores that you see at uh, higher income schools. Exactly. Yeah. So digging into the final part, why I wanted to reach out to you to discuss this issue and its roots. So I have the, the pleasure of working directly with teachers throughout the Pacific Northwest. My wife is a teacher. I have two small children. I have a front row seat to the state of K-12 education, and my perspective is informed by the various lenses to which I have at my disposal to view this problem. And what I'm seeing concerns me. Um, a friend who is a, a principal at a local middle school said to me in November that they think next year, 2022, 23, 
is going to be harder than this year, which is virtually impossible to believe. And this was before Omicron. But their take is that a lot of teachers returned to school for the 2021-22 school year after almost a full year of teaching virtually. They had high hopes of returning to some semblance of normalcy. This has not been the case. This year has been beyond challenging. At this point, we don't need to go into why. If you don't know, please, please, please take my word for it. Teaching is hard in this year, maybe the hardest year of teaching ever. And so this principal thinks that a significant number of teachers are staking it out through the end of the year, and then they're going to leave the profession. My reading of the research suggests that it's unclear if attrition is higher for effective or ineffective teachers, but what does seem to be clear right now is that it doesn't matter a whole lot, that everyone is considering leaving the profession, and there just doesn't seem to be the same supply of teacher candidates and current teachers waiting to fill those jobs you alluded uh, to that a bit in the beginning where you said that enrollment in teacher ed programs is dipping. And I one can hypothesize that it's likely that the, uh, the number, the uh, half of teachers who leave schools and go to other schools, uh, that a higher percentage of those folks just are gonna leave the profession entirely. I've already seen a number of experienced teachers who have called it quits mid-year and I get it. Um, so what's going on right now? How is this current situation different? And even before answering that, I do want to throw in a second thought experiment. So imagine that same situation from before where a colleague leaves, but now either there's no one to replace this person or there just isn't a qualified candidate and it's not tenable to leave that position unfilled. You can imagine a basketball team with four players, a football team with 10 players, maybe even nine. How might your workspace operate how might you feel? And when I use the word feel, I actually mean feel emotionally, physically, intellectually. Um, and I think it's important to envision what it might be like to be a teacher right now. I get a lot of folks are struggling. I'm not saying they're not, but I'm in the K-12 space. This is a podcast focused on public education, which I think is a public good. I think it's critical to the health of our democracy. I think teaching is an incredibly important profession. And if it is on the brink, brink of crisis, we should probably be paying more attention to it. So getting back to those questions, what are you seeing out there? What's going on? How is this current situation different in 2022 than uh, you know the research that you've done pre-COVID? Yeah, this is a really tough question. Um, I think the pandemic has really just amplified everything that was already wrong prior to 2020, but then multiplied it by a million, right? So teacher stress and burnout was already a growing problem. Many teachers already felt underpaid and undervalued. Enrollment in teacher preparation programs was declining. And then the shock hits and all of a sudden, you know, society is asking teachers to shoulder this unimaginable burden and to do so um, with a public that isn't always very understanding or supportive. So, you know, I completely agree with you that we're in a huge um, crisis moment for, for teaching. What I'm not sure about is whether this, what I'm not sure about is how many teachers are going to show up next year. And the reason I'm not as pessimistic, um, I mean, I think this is a huge problem long-term, what I don't know is a lot of people predicted in the 
2020-2021 school year that a bunch of teachers were just not going to show up. And they predicted that because, you know, there was a disease that was potentially deadly and that teachers wouldn't want to come back. Um, That largely didn't happen in part because, you know, attrition during last year was no different than attrition in any other year. Um, Generally, we see this during recessions that people are actually less likely to leave their jobs and they're less likely to leave teaching in part because they probably have fewer outside options or they need the money or, you know, something like that. And that's something that we see descriptively in our study. And so, you know, it's undeniable that more teachers than ever want to leave their jobs right now. What I don't know is how many are actually going to leave their jobs. Um, And so, you know, so I, I think it's, a huge problem, but I don't know when that problem is going to materialize and whether it's going to be a shock to the system that a lot of teachers are going to leave after this year, or whether it's going to be more of a problem of um, the teaching profession long-term is just becoming more and more um, or less and less uh, desirable to people entering the profession. So I I guess we have to see, but um, I'm cautiously hopeful that we'll at least be able to staff schools in the short term. I I appreciate that optimism. And it does seem unclear. And I think we we always like to, you know, use that term crisis um, to describe uh, what's going on because it's a a flashy term and it makes headlines. And I feel like uh, certainly people outside of public education frequently like to say that K-12 education is in crisis. Uh, so I uh, I appreciate your hopefulness um, and the uncertainty about how this is going to play out. I'm curious with declining enrollments, and maybe this isn't in a, isn't a question um, that you can answer, but with declining enrollments in teacher ed programs, thinking historically, how much space is there? I would say, manage, you know, the loss of, let's say, an extra 1% or 2% of teachers. Is the is the, the supply there to meet that demand? Um, because I think even a, a small change right now could lead to significant impacts. But yeah, I'm curious to hear, you know, what your thoughts are on that, whether you've, uh, your research alludes to, um, you know, how much extra space there might be, how many extra teachers typically there are waiting in the wing who didn't get a job and wanted one. Um, so yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on. Yeah, the, I'm I'm not completely sure. I will say that, so I, I, I saw a statistic recently that actually for the first time in several years, teacher preparation program enrollments were actually up slightly this year. So that's great. <laughs> who knows if it's a blip um, or whether it's something more permanent, but at least it's it it didn't tank. In terms of again, this this is this question of how much slack there is in the system. And my guess has to be that this is going to vary from state to state and from place to place in terms of how much extra supply there is out there. I know in North Carolina, around the time that we were doing this study, they had they had introduced these new pathways into teaching that didn't involve going to a teacher preparation program. And they were actively trying to encourage people to use that. Um, and they tended to be much shorter, shorter turnaround times to actually get certification. 
So we might see more states doing that type of thing, trying to have kind of quick pathways into teaching absent pain teachers a lot more. I don't know. I don't know how they continue to convince people to, to keep, keep doing this, but um, I'm sure they'll manage the best they can, but it'll definitely be difficult. Yeah, I know I, that, that resonates with me and it does seem like it's going to be a state by state problem. I know in Oregon, that seems to where I live, that seems to have higher um, certification requirements for teachers that they, for whatever reason, seem to have, uh, actually, I'm not, I'm not sure if that's the case. Um, scratch that. I'll take that out of the podcast. What I wanted to say um, was that uh, from what I've heard from some local school districts, they are kind of taking anybody off, off of the street to come in and substitute teach. I'm not sure how literal to take that, but uh it does, uh, when you hear something like that, uh, definitely is, is concerning. One thing that you mentioned just then, and we haven't talked a lot about, is teacher pay. And I would just like to allude to this, especially in an economy that does seem to be doing well, despite um, the fact that there is you know, what appears to be inflation. Because of inflation, obviously, cost of living is going up. Can you just speak to teacher pay? Uh, if you've uh, done any research on that or, or um, if you want to allude to some of the research in the space and how that impacts um, potentially what we're seeing? Sure. So my read of the literature is that teacher pay may not have like short-term impacts on student learning or on teacher retention necessarily. Um, you know, it might not have this immediate impact on the types of outcomes that we tend to measure in education research. But I think as people are getting better at studying long-term effects of, of teacher salary increases, teacher union protections, other different efforts to improve the status of teachers, I think there's more and more evidence out there that those are very helpful in the long run for improving the quality of education and for making teaching a place that teachers want to stay in that profession and commit themselves to. So yeah, I it's not something that I've studied directly, teacher pay, but it's hard to imagine a solution of making teaching um, a stronger profession and a more desirable profession without salary being one of those elements that you think about. Yeah, absolutely. And this is going to be, I hope, a common thread throughout this series. And I personally am a huge proponent of massive pay increases for teachers. I think that, you know, some of the research that's done sort of outside the K-12 space, more by economists, would suggest that raising teacher pay or spending more per pupil doesn't have uh, the kinds of downstream positive impacts that you would hope for or maybe expect. But I also think they're operating within uh, this box that has a ceiling. And I think you almost need to get rid of the ceiling and raise it you know, to a point where some of those folks may be uncomfortable with, but it might be the, the only thing to do to, uh, to actually improve you know, the, the situation for, for teachers. And uh, just as somebody personally who, you know, every now and then kicks around the idea of getting back into the classroom because I love working with kids, I cannot 
I cannot do it because I would take such a financial hit and it pains me to say that, but you know, it's the, it's the reality um, that, uh, that we're living in. So one last question, can you speak to any policy prescriptions that you feel like can begin to address this problem? I know we didn't talk a whole lot about the roots of, of this problem, the causes of it, but you do at the end of your paper allude to some potential policy changes that could uh, change um, rates of teacher turnover. They could keep more teachers in the profession, pay likely being a big one of them, uh, but any other ones that, uh, that we haven't talked about yet. Sure, so in terms of policy solutions, Again, I don't think, especially if we're thinking about the current crisis, it's hard to think of quick fixes when this is really a structural systemic issue that's been around for a while. Um, in our study, some of the things that we, we focus on and think are, are quite important. One is school leadership. When you think of working conditions for teachers, this is something that always pops up as one of the most important factors for for improving teacher satisfaction, teacher empowerment, um, is having good principles and good leadership. And I imagine in times of crisis, that's probably even more so that having a, a principal who's managing the situation really well can really help retain teachers. Another potential policy solution, again, because turnover isn't evenly distributed across schools, uh, schools serving high need student populations have much higher rates of turnovers. You can imagine something like pay incentives that help to not only attract teachers into those schools, but then also retain them there. So incentives that could encourage teachers to actually stay and commit to these, quote, hard to staff schools, unquote. And then finally, this is something I was just thinking about as you were talking, but when I'm thinking about what might happen next year, and I have a this is a bit of a tangent. I have a friend who's a veterinarian, but in her office, people kept quitting because they were under so much stress and pressure right now. And so people kept quitting. And then every time someone quit, the people left over, their jobs were 10 times harder. And so it was just this compounding issue where their jobs were coming, were becoming worse and worse over time as you know, there were more and more staffing issues. And we could see this type of thing happening in schools pretty easily. And so to the extent that it's harder to build a teacher supply really quickly um, or a backup teacher supply really quickly, I imagine it could be really useful to, for schools to hire a bunch of other types of support services and resources in schools, um, things like teaching assistants, instructional coaches, um, nurses, social worker, you name it, mental health services, just more types of support services in schools so that teachers don't feel like they're taking on 12 different jobs at a time. Yeah, we need more utility teachers. I, uh, the third year uh, that I was in the K-12 profession, so I, I worked for two years in a classroom and the third year, I kind of did some tutoring and subbed for a year at that school that I had taught at. It was a K-8 school. And I was basically a utility teacher where I uh, showed up in whatever K-8 classroom needed me. 
that day. I knew the students because I had been there for two years. Uh, I had taught elementary school, but I'd coached in, uh, in the upper school. So I was a familiar face. And that continuity uh, was, I think, so helpful for, for them. And I think, uh, as you said, yeah, more, more of those kinds of teachers um, are critical, but that gets to uh, those costs of uh, just trying to, trying to maintain um, maintain school settings. And so how do you, how do you even begin to pay for those kinds of teachers? Um, I think it, it goes to sort of raising the ceiling of what it costs to, to educate one student. Cause maybe if we do raise that ceiling, we'd see some significant gains. Um, you also spoke to school leadership, um, absolutely critical, but even there, I think about, uh, my, uh, my friend who's a principal here talked about having to do two to three hours of contact tracing every night after his, uh, after uh, being a principal all day long, potentially subbing. And that certainly wasn't in his job description. And after, uh, you know, a certain amount of time, you look at that and just say, you know, no, thank you. And while that's no doubt an extreme situation, um, we've been asking principals, we've been asking teachers to go above and beyond um, for for many years to do so things that are outside their their job description. Anything that I didn't ask? Anything that I'm missing? No, thank you so much. This has been really interesting and great getting to talk to you. Yeah, you as well. I appreciate your time. I appreciate your work in this space, and I'm looking forward to staying in touch and just kind of seeing how how this plays out. I am hopeful that you are hopeful. Uh, and, um, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll see how the next, uh, next couple months, uh, work out. Hopefully we can just get past the surge and things will settle back to normal and, uh, and maybe we'll return to, uh, sort of pre-COVID, uh, teacher turnover or, um, yeah, we'll see. We will see. <laughs> I hope so as well. All right. Well, Lucy Sorensen, thank you so much for your time. Thank you.